morning. Right then. Oh, we are sparse, aren't we? <laughs> Gathering. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, we're still in John's Gospel. And um, where we're at, if you want to get your Bibles, you need to turn to John. And you want to find the end of chapter 9. And you're going to find that on page 1076. 1,076. Okay, now, as you're looking up that, we'll just have a quick um, think about John's Gospel. Now, remember, in John's Gospel, John isn't doing it as a this happened, then this happened, then this happened, but he's putting evidence together for people to say, Jesus is the Son of God. You need to believe in him. You need to go through him. You need to grab onto him with both hands if you want to be saved. There's no other way. And he's using um, certain uh, events, illustrations, and examples to convince the reader that Jesus is the Son of God, and so they might believe in him and be saved. So of all of Jesus' life... Um, John actually only uses 20 days of Jesus' life. Imagine that. Remember, it says, you know, if everything was written down, we couldn't put it in a book. You know, all you couldn't contain it because Jesus did so much. But John specifically picks these 20 days and these specific examples to convince us, the reader, that Jesus is indeed who he says he is, the Son of God. Welcome. <laughs> Someone just give in. Okay, so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at one of these times, and it started in chapter 7, and we're going to round it off today, and where we've been has been in the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, now this is one of three events that a Jewish man had to attend. Okay, Feast of Tabernacles. And they had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, three things happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. Firstly, everyone lived in tents. Okay, so outside their house, they would have built a booth and the family would have slept in it and eaten in it um, and lived as if they're camping for seven days. And this was to remember the time that they were in the desert. Uh, they'd been brought out of Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land. And during that time, they lived in tents. So that's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening, do you remember we talked about how they had the water ceremony? So part of these seven days, every day, they would process into the temple, they would pour out water, they would pour out wine, and the water symbolized um, God's provision to them, so this was also a celebration of harvest, but more specifically, it was about God's provision. Do you remember when they were in the desert, they complained to Moses and said, you know, we brought us out, we, we haven't got any water, and then Moses tapped the rock. And there's another story there, but God produced water for them. So it was remembering this living water. And in the middle of this, obviously, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, you can come to me. So he's using that. 
The third thing that John spoke about the other week was these burning lamps. Now, you remember, as they processed through the desert, they followed a pillar of fire. And fire symbolized God's presence in the temple. Continually burning is the fire on the altar that must never, ever go out. It symbolizes God's presence. And John was telling us the other week that um, in at this time, during the tabernacle feast, there would be these humongous uh, lamps burning in the courtyards. And that at night, the whole of Jerusalem would be lit up by this fantastic, amazing, powerful light through the whole of Jerusalem. And Jesus, of course, stands up in the middle of that. And what does he say? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Do you think this is powerful? You think God, you know, you were following the light in the desert and it was the pillar and it symbolized God's presence. Guess what, guys? I'm the light of the world. So you can see what he's doing here at the temple is um, is quite significant. Um, and he's illustrated this. Uh, remember, John, uh, he put in the illustration of the Samaritan woman who he asked for a drink. And he said, if you knew who was talking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we see the contrast of how the Samaritans come to accept Jesus is the Lord. We don't just believe because of what you've said, but because we've seen him now. So he's contrasted that. And then when it comes to um, the seeing bit, the light of the world, John again contrasts the man born blind who cannot see, who moves in this spiritual journey from not being able to see at all to be able to see Jesus and say, you are the son of God. I believe. I believe. And he contrasts that again with the Pharisees who just simply cannot see who Jesus is. They are so dead set on the fact that he cannot possibly be the Messiah that they are completely blind to the obvious that is right in front of them. So that's where we're at today. And we're going to start by just reading the end of where we got to um, last week. So we're going to um, start in verse 34. So if you hear last week, we did the healing of the blind man. And remember, there was all this controversy because the Pharisees were like, well, you know, can't possibly have been healed by Jesus. We know that he's a sinner. And they get so angry that we'll pick it up in verse 34 now. To this they replied, so this is to the blind man, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out. And when they found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you see, your guilt remains. And we're going to stop there and then we'll do chapter 10 in a minute. So um, have you ever heard that expression, you can't see for looking? Yeah? I, I'm not very observant. Rob will tell you this as he gets his hair cut and I never notice. <laughs> 
But often I find that if I'm looking, for example, for my keys, do you ever have this? That I find them where I've already looked. How bizarre is that? My mum used to have this expression that, you know, something spiritual had happened and these, these keys had reappeared where she'd looked. But often we can't see for looking. I um, heard this uh, this funny story about, it's Holmes and Watson, okay? So if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, you're with me now. And they go camping together. And in the middle of the night, um, Holmes wakes Watson up and says, Watson, Watson, what do you see? So Watson's there, he's lying in his sleeping bag. This is a test. So he looks up, he says, well, you know, I, I can see galaxies, I can, I, can see, uh, I can see the moon reflecting the light of the sun, I can see stars and constellations of, you know, Orion and da-da-da, and he goes on and on and on about what he can see, and he thinks he's doing quite a good job. And then Holmes just says, you fool, Watson, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> I liked that. <laughs> It's important that we look carefully, isn't it? In this section, we can see how um, the spiritual leaders are just so blinded. Their perceived understanding of who Jesus is, they just flatly refuse to see the obvious. Here's a man who was born blind, and now he can see. Who did this? Jesus did it. No, can't possibly have done it. They are so blinded. By what they believe, they know about Jesus. And in fact, at the end of that, we see that he was thrown out of the temple. Now, to be thrown out of the temple would be to be barred from the temple. So you can imagine, as a Jew, that is quite significant. You're not only are you excluded from going in, but you're excluded from all these festivals that are going to happen. There are big family occasions, people coming together. You can't sacrifice, make a sacrifice for your sin. Uh, people would not want to employ you because you've been excluded. You've been cast out of the community. And that's why when his parents are asked, is this is your son? They say, um, well, he's of age. You can ask him. They don't want to get chucked out of the temple. And here, they have cast him out. They've abandoned him. The people that should have cared for him, ooh, there's a glass of water down there. They, um, people they should have cared for him have thrown him out. And in this, we read that Jesus went and found him and welcomes him. Where people and strategies and systems fail us, Jesus will not. He's searching for you. And this is, this is one of the things that comes across here. We often see Jesus searching for people. And Luke records this. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And here we see in this passage, this title, Son of Man, in fact, this is one of Jesus's, uh, it is his uh, most desired title for himself. He takes it from one of the prophets, Daniel, who writes in Daniel 7 about a son of man coming. And the son of man um, has authority and honor and sovereign power. And Jesus takes this picture of this heavenly uh, being who will come, whose kingdom will never end, and he applies it to himself. And we see here that the blind man says, 
Then the man said to Jesus, when he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And the I believe that this man is saying is a bit like, um, if you can imagine uh, that kind of illustration of putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah? You ever heard that? The eggs in one basket thing. This is uh, this man saying, not just I believe, but I'm all in with you. You got that kind of picture, haven't you, of people gambling going, I'm all in. And this is what he's saying, I am all in with you. Um, I'm betting 100% on you, Jesus. I'm not going to hold anything back from you. I'm completely in with you. He puts his trust completely in Jesus. It's a bit like Simon Peter when Jesus says, will you leave me also? He says, well, to else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm all in with you. And many of us know this ourselves. You know, we've tried different things in our lives. We've tried exploring different ways of finding uh, the healing that we need, finding the fulfillment that we need, finding the security that we need. And we've found that actually they don't fulfill us. We need to be all in with Jesus. And I remember when I first realized this, um, it's the first time, in fact, that I would say that I felt the full presence of the Holy Spirit upon me. And I was lying in my bed, and um, things um, had not gone very well for me. Some of my eggs, as I would say, were in Jesus' basket. But there were definitely a few eggs over here. It's a bit like when they say you've got uh, one foot in each camp. And I was sort of living like that. But this basket over here... That had not held my eggs well. They had definitely smashed. And I can remember, I was just alone and I said, Jesus, in the past, you have had a small part of me. Today, you get my all. And the immense love and power that I felt at that moment, going from my feet to my head, just caused me to weep with joy. It was such a powerful um, feeling of acceptance. And that is what God is desiring from us. A full, I believe in you, Jesus, is to say, I am all in with you. I've got no safety nets elsewhere. And that is what God desires of us. And we see that the man worshipped Jesus. Because at that point, when you say, I am 100% in with you. You can't do anything else but worship Jesus because you realize that his love is so immense for you. And if you can't say that yet today, perhaps you can say something like the man who came to Jesus and wanted to believe, who said, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think we get a sense here, don't we? I believe. I've put a few eggs there. Help me now overcome my unbelief and make sure I'm 100% in with you. Or in the case of this man, help me overcome my blindness. Because the biggest healing for our man born blind was not his eyes, but spiritually, as he came to see clearly who Jesus was. The religious leaders did not want him. And Jesus said they remained in their guilt because of it. 
They literally said, they were saying to Jesus, we've got no need of you. We reject you. And as Jesus said, if you believe that, then you remain in your guilt. You think you see me clearly, but you can't see for looking. The very God that the Jews claimed to worship and know and love was stood right in front of them. But all they could see were reasons why not to believe. You have to, in a sense, know that you're blind in order to see. Okay. Number two. You have to admit you don't know the way to be guided. Let's read the next bit. We're going to read chapter 10 now. And we're just going to read verse 1 to 6. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So we'll leave that there for a minute. So what's happening? Remember, they're still at the Feast of Tabernacles. There's still a crowd around him. And Jesus turns and looks at the Pharisees who've thrown this man out of the temple directly. And he gives them this simple parable about true shepherds and not true shepherds. Jesus here is describing a city pen. So what would happen... Yeah, you're going to have to use your imagination. But here is a pen. And it's the walls are very high. It's like a, a um, like a court, I get a courtyard surrounded by high walls, and there would be a um, one entrance to this, the gatekeeper. And anyone who came into the city, their sheep would go into the pen with all the other sheep. All of them are there, and then their shepherd would come in the morning and call them, and his sheep and his sheep alone would come out. Interesting, huh? And Jesus says, very simple, it's an obvious, everybody knows it who's listening to him, that the one who isn't the shepherd, well, how do they get the sheep? Well, they climb the, they climb over the wall, they kill the sheep, they chuck it over to their mate, and off they run with it. They steal the sheep. So Jesus gives this really, really obvious little story, and everyone's like, well, why is he told that? What on earth is that about? Why is he speaking? Now, the leaders of God's people were referred to as shepherds. It's a bit like, as we have a minister or a pastor, we might say they shepherd the sheep. We might use that. They'd use it exactly the same for the leaders of the the Jews. But they don't get it at all. They know that they're shepherds. They know that Jesus told this shepherdy story. But what on earth is Jesus on about? So he says, okay, well, I'll tell you plainly. Verse 7, let's read on. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
They will come in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus says, well, you don't understand. I'll spell it out. I'm the gate. It's me. I'm the gate. I'm here. You want to get to the sheep? You got to go through me. You want to take the sheep out? You got to go through me. I am the gate. You couldn't put it more easily before them. A different illustration though he's using this time. This time he's speaking of an outside pen. So when they're in the city, they're in this big courtyard, but when they're outside, they're in a rough pen. So we've got our little pen here. Here it is. And the shepherd at night, can you see there's no gate? He would lie down. He would be the gate. Okay. I could lie down on the stage, but we'll go like this. Okay. So if the sheep wanted to get out, they have to step over him. And if a thief wants to get in, they have to step over him. He says, I am the gate. I'm the only way in. I'm the only way out. There's no alternatives here. The shepherd lays down in the gap. Whoever enters he says, will be saved. They find safety, security, and life. And Jesus is going to say the same again. Remember, I said the other week that in John, he just sort of says the same thing again and again and again, but in different ways. And later on, he'll say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying the same thing again. There's no other way. Jesus offers no alternatives. It sometimes feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? Knowing God can only come through Jesus. It happens through him. There's only one door. Jesus doesn't give any alternatives. There's one way. And anyone or anything that offers different, Jesus says, is a thief and a liar. The enemy, the devil, is willing to promise us many stuff from many different things. You can find satisfaction here. You can find security here. You can find freedom from your fears here. And he'll offer you all these things to convince you that that is the way. But ultimately, they won't fulfill you. They won't meet your needs. And the devil will tell us, you know, isn't that a bit narrow-minded? Isn't that a bit bigoted? How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Well, all we can say is that Jesus said, I am the way. It's not us. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the gate. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, says in Acts, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in fact, Peter was so convinced of this, he was willing to die. As many Christians today are willing to die for this fact, that Jesus said there is no other way. Whatever alternative is offered, if it doesn't have Jesus on the cross, dying in your place, rising again, seated on high, exalted, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, then it is not the way. Jesus said, finally, and here he says, 
I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. What does the full mean? Let me have a look. No. Full. That word full. What is Jesus offering? Well, full means abundance. It means excessively. It means overflowing. Remember the psalm, my cup overflows. This is the word that Jesus is using. It's more than you need, he's promising you. A great surplus, in fact. Whatever you need, Jesus says, I will give it to the full, as in overflowing. I will meet your needs and not only just meet what you need, but I will give it in abundance. So, final point. You have to admit that you have a need to be satisfied. Let's uh, read 11 to 18. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheepfold, which I must bring. Also, they too will listen to my voice, and there they shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason the son, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to change the metaphor again. I'm not just the gate. I am the shepherd. I'm both of these things. You can only go through me. You can only be led through me. I am the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd. I am the good one. If you read it in the Greek, it's like, I'm the shepherd, the good one. It's like emphasizing it to you. I've got the truth. I'm going to offer you life. I am the one you've got to follow. And Throughout the Old Testament, we see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy speaking about the Good Shepherd. So here they are listening to him. And it's not like, you know, when we think about shepherd, well, we're city dwellers, so we don't really get it. But they would have got it. Let's look at this one. We're just going to very quickly. um, Jeremiah writes, woe to the shepherds. They're destroying and scattering the sheep. And then he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Familiar? Ezekiel. Again, he starts with, woe to you shepherds of Israel who don't, who only take care of yourselves. You've not strengthened the weak. You've not healed those who are ill. You have ruled harshly and brutally. They are scattered. And what does God say? I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after us, his scattered flocks, when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them. I will tend my sheep. 
and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring them back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Isaiah, what does he say? See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And then it says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the descendant of David. I'm the long-awaited king. I am the Lord. I have come to get my sheep. And I have come to call them. To call us by name. The Bible says that Jesus knows us by name. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. He's calling us specifically in the vastness of the universe, of our insignificant tiny dot that we are within the magnitude of Jesus' creation. He knows us by name. He knows your name. Secondly, he says he will lead his sheep into good pastures. That rich, abundant, and overflowing fullness. Where will he lead us, this good shepherd? Okay, he's called me. Where will he lead me? Will he lead me into trouble? Will he lead me into danger? What does Jesus promise? I will lead you into good places, into abundance. What else will the good shepherd do? He will free the sheep. To choose what's good and right. They will come and go freely. Jesus says, I will give them freedom to come and go and to choose what is right. I will provide for the sheep. I will give and meet their needs in every way possible. Whatever our need is, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'll meet your needs. I will protect the sheep. What does it say? No weapon formed against us will prosper. The Lord is our defender. Like the boy David, because that's the picture here, isn't it? Defending the sheep from a lion or a wolf. God says, I am your defender. I will defend you, my sheep. And I will save you. I will lay down my life for the sheep, willingly. Remember in John's gospel, there's that great sense of control the whole time, isn't there? That Jesus' time had not yet come. No one could force him to do anything or to go anywhere or say anything. Jesus remains completely in control in John. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep and I have authority to raise it up again. He's totally in control. Jesus, in John, predicts his death and resurrection. And he does indeed die and resurrect. Jesus predicts that the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit indeed comes. And now Jesus says, I am coming again. And he will come. Good shepherd is coming. Says he sacrificed his life out of obedience to the Father. And earlier in John, we read the most famous of passages, don't we? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a quality of life, a fullness of life, that abundance of life that he's talking about here. The overflowing, where you have so much you don't know what to do with it. This is the life he is offering. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is actually my favorite verse. But to save the world through him. I love that verse. And Jesus, he had to come and he had to die. I'm just going to tell a very simple story just to, to illustrate that. There's a story told about a particular Indian tribe who was suffering from the effects of a severe drought. Food was scarce and the members of the tribe were beginning to steal from one another. When the chief knew that this would be the death of the tribe, he issued a law that the next person caught stealing would be taken to the centre of the village, tied to a pole and publicly whipped. The next day, sure enough, the thief was caught and everyone turned round to see who it was and to witness the punishment. To everyone's shock, the thief turns out to be the chief's own mum. What was he going to do now? He was a good chief and he could not ignore the law that he had made the day before. He had to be judge. But this was his mum. She was old and frail and the beating would surely kill her. And he loved her. He what do you think he could do? Which should win, his justice or his love? Well, here's what he did. He ordered that her wrist be tied to a pole so that the beating could begin. And he called the punisher to step forward and with a whip in his hand. But before he gave the order to commence, he stepped between his mum and the punisher. He stretched his broad shoulders across her frail black back And with her body completely protected underneath his own, he ordered that the punishment be carried out. As the cords of the whip fell, they fell on him, and he absorbed the full brunt of her penalty. In this act, he was both just in carrying out the penalty and loving by suffering it himself. And this is, of course, what Jesus did for us. We're guilty of breaking his laws, and we know it. Every one of us has a list of things we're ashamed of or things that we can't stop doing that we know is wrong. And the Bible is clear that sin earns the penalty and God is just. The penalty must be paid. But it's also clear that God loves us. He didn't come to the world to condemn, but to save. He wants good things for us and he doesn't want the punishment to fall on us. So here's what he does. He declares us guilty in order that the penalty be paid. Then he came to earth, became a man and hung on a cross for us. And when Jesus was crucified, what he was doing was stepping between us who are guilty and God the Father who demands justice. He absorbed the blows of what that punishment so that we wouldn't have to. And this is the choice before us. We can accept the good shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. 
This is what I'm offering you. This is what I came into the world to do. Or you can choose another shepherd. This is your choice. You choose your shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. We all know we've done something wrong. Yesterday, I was chatting with a friend, and I don't know how we did it, but we we got talking about communism and (laughs) whether that would work or not work and leaders, corruption and things like that. And uh, she was having a really good rant, and so was I. And then afterwards, we bizarrely got onto this idea of of medication. Um, She noticed on my shelf the the cream that Becca has for her eczema. And she said, oh, that's really good, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? We get it for Becca, but we all use it. And as we talked in this conversation, of course, we came around to the idea that actually... We are corrupt ourselves. We're doing what we shouldn't do, even if it seems like a small thing. And we could see that both of us, the penny dropped, that what we were doing was wrong. We were stealing. And it might be a small things like that, but we know that none of us can point the finger and say, I've never done anything wrong. And Jesus says, I will stand between you and the punishment you deserve. I'm the good shepherd. I want to lead you. I want to protect you. I'll lay down my life for you. It's your choice. I love this. In a, It comes in uh, Romans chapter 8. And I love it in the New Living Translation. You haven't got that in front of you. I'm sorry. But this is a great verse. It says, who then will condemn us? And it's talking about those that are loved by God. It says, Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in a place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And I just think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Sometimes we just think, oh, well, he dies and he rose. Well, why did he do that? was for us and he lives today to plead for us so I guess in a minute we're just gonna we're gonna pray we're gonna pray this prayer I'm just gonna read it through and if you like to pray it then you can pray it with me today maybe today you're thinking well I've never fully trusted in the good shepherd but today I want to or maybe you're thinking well some of my eggs are with him but some I've still got Well, maybe this is a good day for you to put it all. Say, I'm all in with you, Jesus. I've got nothing left. It's all yours. So in a minute, we're going to pray, Father, I'm sorry that I've turned away from you and I've done or not done things to others and myself that would not make you happy. I've sinned. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me in my place. I accept his gift now. I want to follow Jesus, the good shepherd, all the days of my life. Thank you for giving me. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me live for you. Amen. So let's pray that together. Then you can just say amen at the end if you agree. Father, I am sorry that I have turned away from you. And have done or not done things to others and myself that would make you happy. I've sinned.
please forgive me. I am so sorry. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me in my place. I accept his gift now. I want to follow Jesus, the good shepherd, all the days of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me live for you. Amen. And if you prayed that today for the first time, I'd love to chat with you afterwards and give you something. And if you prayed today that you would put all your eggs in the same basket, then please come tell me too, or please meet up with someone in the prayer team afterwards. And Peter will tell you more about that.